With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the 19th episode of my show. I use this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, highlight current issues that need to be discussed more, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please check out my website, Simbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. My June Privacy Professor Tips message was published in late May. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They're free. You can sign up for them by going to PrivacyGuidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who your privacy or data security go-to person is at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy and security heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Now today, my tip of the week relates to our topic. So do you read the privacy notices for the organizations with whom you share your personal data? And by this, I am including your personal physical representations, such as your saliva or urine or blood. Well, if you don't, you need to. Most of these privacy notices are actually notices of no privacy. This is changing a bit, though, with the new European Union General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which resulted in literally millions of updated privacy notices in recent months. However, there are still tens of millions of privacy notices that basically tell you that you have no expectation of privacy, you cannot access or remove your personal data, and they tell you that they will share your data with, well, basically whomever they want. This is especially true with apps, with medical and wearable devices, and with the so-called free online games and social media sites. So here's your tip. Read those privacy notices and then challenge the organizations who have these poor anti-privacy notices. Now, if they do not agree to better protect your privacy, then just don't do business with them. So today I'm discussing a topic that is in the news increasingly more often. Now, over the years, I have been so intrigued with human DNA and how it's so uniquely 
defines and represents us biologically and historically. And I've had my eye on all those ancestry DNA tests for years. Then I received the Helix DNA test from National Geographic for a gift. Now, this particular guess or test uses saliva for their testing. I want to get three to four of the other most popular ancestry DNA tests that are out there so I could see if the results are going to be the same between them all. But guess what? I'm concerned about the privacy issues involved and how those DNA testing businesses are using and sharing the results they obtained from all the samples. Their privacy notices are generally entirely too vague, and some do not even recognize DNA as a type of personal information. So back to my tip, I'm trying to find out more information from the one I have from Helix and validate that they do have privacy-friendly practices before I submit my sample. And speaking of DNA, in April of this year, there was a highly publicized case where the California Golden State killer murder rapist case arrest occurred. It was widely reported that genealogy website data was used to catch the alleged murder. And reportedly, the arrest of the man, Joseph D'Angelo, who has been charged with 12 counts of first-degree murder and may be responsible for at least 45 rapes between 1974 and 1986, was reportedly made after obtaining a DNA profile with data from the criminal that police plugged into an open-source DNA ancestry site and located a pool of distant relatives. And then from there, they somehow zeroed in on D'Angelo. Now, after I've read these reports, I wondered, well, wait, where did they get that DNA from D'Angelo? And is that genealogy site like what I'm considering using to find out my ancestry? What really is possible with DNA analysis and forensics? And where are they getting all this DNA and how is it really being used in criminal cases? You know, I know those CSI types of shows are fiction and probably much of what they show on, on those different episodes is not actually possible. I wanted to know more about the actual ways DNA can be used in a wide variety of purposes by many different types of organizations and the ways in which we leave our DNA behind. And I was so fortunate to find an expert with deep experience in DNA forensics to answer these questions and have a conversation with me about DNA. Today, my guest is Melissa Heligso. Melissa is a forensic DNA analysis, or excuse me, analyst, sorry, with over 18 years of experience analyzing over 900 cases in an ASCLD lab-accredited human identification laboratory. Melissa's been 
qualified as an expert witness approximately 70 times in state and federal courts. Melissa has also consulted on several cases involving the United States Air Force. Melissa, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I like to ask all my guests as a first question, what led you to this profession? You know, was it carefully planned? Was it something you fell into or somewhere in between? <laughs> well, first of all, my undergraduate uh, degree was in clinical laboratory science. So mm. I was officially trained at that time to work in a laboratory that had to do with some kind of medical background. So whether in a hospital, mm -hmm. a doctor's office, a clinic, um, and I went ahead and worked in a hospital for about two and a half years. Um, after mm. that, I started working at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and they have a laboratory that all of the testing is molecular-based, which just means that it is based on DNA. So the first mm. things that I did was I tested for viruses and for different genetic diseases, and then we were actually the first lab in Nebraska to start doing forensic DNA testing. We had mm. been already doing paternity tests, and we mm -hmm. use the same technology. And we also do some testing for patients who get bone marrow transplants. So ah. the county attorney at the time had um, contacted our laboratory and asked if we would be willing to take on this endeavor, and they said we would. So I started working there in 1998, and in around 1999 to 2000, I started doing casework. Oh, wow. Well, sounds like a great opportunity um, and very interesting, too. So let's start with the basics. You know, please provide for our listeners a high-level overview of DNA and, you know, why and how can it be used to identify a specific individual? Well, I have to explain this a lot in court. <laughs> so, ah, okay, um, great. Right. DNA is your basic uh, molecule that looks like a ladder that's been twisted, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. kind of familiar with what it looks like. Um, yeah. It's basically the blueprint to life. It tells your body how to work. Um, if you consider that most humans look pretty much the same, I mean, we both have two eyes, we've got two ears, you know, our extremities are very similar. Um, you know, it's about 99.9% .9 of your DNA is exactly the same, but there's mm -hmm. about 0.1 that is different, that if you study that, those areas, you can develop a unique identification of that particular biological sample. So, so 0.1%? That's what we Was that 0.1%? Yeah, okay. Yep, 0.1%. And then, so... When we talk about inheriting it, like we hear about this Golden State killer, you know, and they are talking about finding it from his relatives, and there's only a 0.1%, you know, difference. How is it inherited then, and how can it be used? I guess give us a little bit of background on that as far as how you use that in your forensics. Sure. So I first should say that there's two different kinds of DNA testing that I'll be talking about, okay. and they um, kind of overlap and kind of don't. So I just want to be clear about what mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Sure. Um, for our forensic testing, we are looking at locations on your DNA 
Um, all forensic laboratories look at basically the exact same locations. That's how we're able to compare between laboratories, um, mm-hmm. you know, pieces of evidence to different crime scenes or different individuals to different crime scenes through the national database. Um, mm-hmm. In that case, we are looking at basically repeating units of DNA. So it's kind of like the cars on a train, and the difference between people is how many cars do you have? So ah. somebody might have seven and somebody might have nine. Um, but the thing is, is that you inherit one number from your mom and mm-hmm. one, one number from your dad. And so at one location, you should have two numbers. So I would have, let's say, seven repeating units from my mom, eight repeating units from my dad. When I look at the data then, when it's finally completed with my testing and I've run it through my genetic analyzer, it'll show that I have a seven and an eight. Now, Mm. I can do paternity testing based on this result because I can compare it then to a mother and a potential father. And if I, you know, look at enough locations, we look at about 23 locations at this time, um, then I'm pretty confident in the fact of whether, you know, someone could be someone's father or if I'm looking at a piece of evidence, say a blood stain, um, I just simply have to match the numbers and show whether it's the exact same profile or not. Oh, okay. So in your example, the mother was the seven and the father was the eight. So if you're looking for paternity, you're looking to see if that number eight is in there to verify paternity? Correct. Ah, great. Okay. So that helps a lot. I I love that visual of the the train cars (laughs) and stuff. That helped me a lot. Um, So, you know, DNA has been discussed a lot. Uh, for many different uses, for catching criminals, for determining ancestors, for determining paternity, and so on. So what are the differences then in testing for forensics cases versus testing for ancestry, like we use, you know, I talked about spinning into the tube and, and sending it in? Right. So basically, the DNA that I was discussing before is what we use in a forensic laboratory. For mm-hmm. ancestry testing, they're actually looking at much, they're looking at more locations on your DNA, but they're mm-hmm. looking at smaller segments. And those segments represent more of a family line versus a specific person. So uh-huh. in a forensic laboratory, you want to know exactly who that blood belongs to. Um, once I match it to someone, I'll calculate statistics. And, you know, I'll go to court and I'll say it's a one in, you know, 10 quintillion chance that it could be anybody else. And so we're Mm -hmm. fairly certain about those results. For ancestry, they're they're, um, tracing your heritage. And so basically what they're looking at is even just migratory pattern of how people settled in this world, right? And Mm -hmm. so they're Mm -hmm. able to see family lines. And so families will have similar DNA. And they can trace that back quite a few generations. Okay. So for the ancestry then testing, you can tell family lines, but as opposed to forensics, you would not be able to to validate paternity like you could with forensics. Is that a correct statement to say? Well, I suppose in your ancestry, you you are looking at your relatives. So Mm -hmm. you may be able to say it's possible that this person would be your father, but you probably wouldn't be able to pinpoint it to one person. You would be able to say this gentleman or his brothers or his sons or his dad, you know, it would be within the family line. 
Right. Okay. So, you know, in, at the beginning of the show, I was talking about how I got this uh, test. And what I love, what I want to do is I want to get three or four of the other different tests and see if they come back all the same. So if, if they're fairly accurate, should they all come back uh, pretty much the same to each other? Well, that would be an interesting experiment. I would love to do the same thing. Um, okay. We have actually started. Um, <laughs> we've started looking into ancestry testing in our laboratory as well. And what I have found is that the um, kit that we're running um, that generates ancestry information is really only able to be specific down to about seven different ethnicities in the world. So there's ah. African, there's European. There's American, which kind of stands for all of people who originate from America. So that could be American Indian or Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And then it has about three different Asian classes, um, like a southwest and then a south and then east. And then there's one for the Australia area. And so I actually ran into, um, there's two gentlemen that are most um, highly regarded as the two PhDs who um, collected all the information that determined, you know, who comes from where. So, for instance, so the gentleman I talked to was Dr. Kidd. He went and collected these samples from all over the world. So he went to Northern oh. Europe and collected those people and then deemed those people from Europe, European people. He went to Africa and collected those people. I saw him at a conference and I said, you know, I'm just confused. So in my mm -hmm. laboratory with the testing I'm doing using your databases, I'm only able to tell somebody they're from Europe, but I'm mm -hmm. not able to tell them you're from Scotland or you're from Germany. And I mm -hmm. said, but when I watch commercials, they say things like that all the time. And so I just don't yeah. understand, given the same data, how is that possible? And he told me, in a sense, it's not possible. He doesn't believe that these commercialized kits um, are putting out accurate data. And so mm -hmm. I really do have to question it myself. And I would yeah. be interested to see what would happen if you did several different tests, what kind of results you would get. Well, I'll let you know, because now I'm even more intrigued. <laughs> so I, I, would, I would expect, based on what you just told me, that they should all tell me Europe then, but that there might be differences in the specific locations in Europe just because they I might be guessing those based upon what you what you just described. So, um, right. so so uh, getting to your forensics types of analysis, then you know how do you see as an overview going back to this Golden State Killer? You know, they were talking about how they had his DNA and they put it into this uh, genealogy um, open data set. You know. What are the ways do you see, you know, at a high level, I guess, that they track down the Golden State Killer uh, based on what you've heard about that? I um, have actually been kind of looking into this case because I find it really interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, they had his forensic DNA profile and they've had it for years because when he um, sexually assaulted people, he left behind his DNA. And so oh, okay. they've had his DNA profile for quite some time. It's been in the, it's been searched against the national database. They never found a match. So they've mm. had that for quite a while. Um, then they got the idea of looking into these um, genealogy websites. And so there's a publicly open 
a database that's called GED Match. And basically that database doesn't do any of the testing itself. What you Mm. have to do is once you get your results from somewhere like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or something like that, you take your results from those companies and then Mm -hmm. you willingly upload those into this GED Match. And the Mm -hmm. whole idea was, you know, people have been getting their ancestry results from different companies, and they could search for family members within the same company, but they couldn't search between companies. So that's why they developed this website, because they thought, well, people should be able to search in between, you know, the different companies. It shouldn't matter who gave you your results. So you knowingly, you know, sign a like you said, read those fine print lines telling you exactly the security, but um, it's it's been clear from the beginning that this was a public database and that, mm-hmm. you know, people could search it. If you're going to search for your family members, you have to agree to let other people search yours um, and you publicly put in your information. So they basically took a sample from one of the rape kits. They had mm-hmm. a company run, I believe it was the FBI. I'm not certain about that. And had them run the ancestry to get the DNA results for that. Mm-hmm. Ran that through the database. And I heard um, today that they actually identified this particular gentleman through a third cousin. Oh, wow. Yeah, through the Ancestry site, apparently they're able to go that far out. So Hmm. he said, um, I was listening to a guy who actually did some of the investigation, and he said, you know, that leads you to a family line, you know, a branch on a family tree. Mm -hmm. Um, It took him four months to then... It gives you a family name. It gives you an right. idea, you know, just a piece of information. He said, so then it took us four months to go through, you know, all the other databases that police officers would have access to, to try mm-hmm. to figure out, is there anyone who would have been living in California at the time? You know, was he of a certain age? Because they knew all of these took place, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You know, yeah. they had certain clues that they knew had to fit. And so then once they identified a person who they thought Mm -hmm. could possibly fit the mold, then they had to get DNA from that particular person and compare it back to the one that they had for the forensic DNA that's specific to him. And then when they found the match, that's how they knew it was him. Okay, okay. So it wasn't as easy as some of these reports. And of course, news reports make, you know, they, they put things in a very quick uh, and uh, interesting way, some simplistic you know, communication. So it sounds like there was a lot that went into it more than what um, some of those headlines made it seem like anyway. Um, Yeah. And so, well then, so they, they were able to track him down after doing a lot of DNA collection, which kind of leads me to just this concept of DNA. I mean, what are the different sources of DNA um, you know, the touch DNA, other types of DNA, um, you know, we, we have about uh, five minutes, four minutes here. We can start talking about the sources of DNA before we get to our break. Okay. Um, the, the main sources of DNA are blood, um, semen, hair roots, um, skin cells or touch DNA, um, you know, those are any bodily fluid. Those are generally the mm-hmm. things I'm looking for in a forensic case. Okay. So if somebody, 
you know, is like you see a lot of times on these TV shows, oh, let's get them to drink a, you know, out of a cup, you know, some pop or something. And then they grab the cup and they they say they take the DNA off of there so they can have the sample. Is that realistic? Yes, I've done that several times. Really? Oh, that's very intriguing. So basically anything that you do touch, if you don't have, what, a glove or some some barrier between your skin and, and whatever the surface is, that could potentially leave DNA that is enough to be analyzed forensically? Yes. Now with a cup, I would have tested the saliva. So saliva has a lot more DNA than just touch DNA. But, um, yes, there are instances in which when you touch something, you leave behind your DNA. So then, so touch as, uh, and skin has less than saliva. How about the blood then? Does blood have more than saliva? Yes. Really? Okay. Is that your best source of DNA typically? Um, Generally between blood and semen, those are our two best sources, yes. Oh, wow. Very interesting. So... What are some of the different variables to determine whether or not you will deposit enough skin cells to be able to develop a a DNA profile? Like you mentioned, I think, about a hair, uh, a piece of hair. Is there like a, does it matter how much there is or how much DNA can you get from that compared to, let's say, saliva or blood? Hairs can be a little bit tricky. Um, they have to have the root attached. So generally, really? if somebody rips the hair out of someone's head and has it in their hand, let's say, um, that will be a good source of DNA. If it's just the hair that kind of naturally falls out of your head that you shed, um, generally mm-hmm. speaking, then the roots are much smaller and those are much more difficult to test. Oh, so a lot of these shows, it shows people trying to get out there. Um, their scissors and getting some hair from people, that's not really going to do them much good then, right? (laughs) Right. We can't test um, cut hair, but you could do mitochondrial testing on the hair shaft. Okay. Interesting. Well, we're coming up on our break here right now. So I want to continue how we can get these different DNA samples um, when we come back. So right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We are speaking today with Melissa Heligso, a forensic DNA analyst. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as provide show topic suggestions and um, other types of ideas. Just use my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also my website, Simmons360.com, PrivacyGuidance.com, and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We are speaking today with Melissa Helixo, a forensic DNA analyst. So let's continue with our conversation. When we left off, we were talking about how hair samples and pieces of hair could be used. So you were getting ready to describe some of the different analysis on that, Melissa. Sure. So for a hair, if the root is present, then we can possibly do just regular forensic DNA testing on it. But if only the shaft is remaining, then they can do what's called mitochondrial testing. And that is basically also passed through the family line, but it's on the mother's side. So you inherit your mitochondrial, that's just the energy centers of your cells. Um, You inherit those entirely from your mother. So this can trace your mother's maternal line. Oh, okay. So in the case of the Golden State Killer, this is all hypothetical, just off the top of my head, but based upon, you know, what we were talking about before, if that third cousin was from his father's side and all we had was hair to go on, you probably wouldn't have been able to get to the killer only using that kind of uh, evidence then. Is that correct? Right. That would be tricky. But the ancestry uh, profiles do incorporate both sides of your family. So that's the good part about that. Right. So that's where it comes into play where you need 
well, you probably use multiple types of forensics and uh, and samples. So, you know, that kind of leads me to how the skin, I mean, if you have different types of skin samples, uh, can you maybe describe some of the DNA from that as well? Sure. So if, um, if you would take your hand and just set it on a countertop, and then I would come by later and swab it for DNA testing, you wouldn't necessarily leave behind enough cells for me to develop a DNA profile. Um, there's a couple variables that come into play. One is the surface itself. If it's rough, obviously that's going to cause more skin cells to fluff off from your hand. So mm -hmm. rough versus smooth, I would have more cells on rough surfaces. Um, also duration. If you touch something for 10 seconds and someone else is touching it all day long, um, you know, obviously I should detect the person who touches it longer. Um, I should detect them. Um, and then also some people are just better sluffers than others. Um, this has been part of the, you know, tough part of doing research projects and trying to figure out how, you know, touch DNA works is they have discovered that certain people just fluff more cells. And then also, mm -hmm. if you're committing a crime, a lot of times you're kind of all sweaty and amped up, and um, that mm -hmm. generally would to leave more skin cells behind as well. So there's a lot oh. of variables. So the skin cells would be within the sweat, and so you have, would that be two different sources of DNA then, the sweat and the skin cells within the sweat? Well, the source of DNA in sweat is the skin cells that are sloughing. Oh, so it's kind of really? one and the same. Okay, so it's not just the liquid on its own, like if you're dripping at the, um, you know, you go to the gym and you're dripping, why just those drips, that, that will have skin cells in it basically then is what you're saying? Yes. Okay, so another thing then that we see a lot in these different shows, you know, the CSI types of shows and so on, they get the, the hair brushes that has not only the hair in it, but there would be the skin cells basically from the dandruff and so on. So those would also be good sources potentially of DNA that you might be used uh, using for your forensic analysis. Yes. Okay. So let's kind of go through, step through some just scenarios because I know um, I love to, to, you know, do these scenarios. and I think my listeners do too. So if you're shaking hands for, with someone, um, is it, is there any DNA that's left when you're shaking hands with someone that might be able to be used? Or is that pretty much dependent upon, like you mentioned before, how much they're sloughing off their skin at the time? Yes, it does depend on the variables, but they have been able to show that if two people shake hands and then afterwards you swab the hand of one of the individuals, that you could detect DNA from the secondary individual as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, how about the paper towels? That's another thing they show, you know, in these different movies and TV shows. Paper towels are collected from the trash to get DNA. Sure. I've received different napkin-type, I guess, pieces of evidence, and those generally are thought to have either wiped their hands or even their mouth, you know, if they were eating. And so then I've tested those, yes. Wow. So, well, what are some of the, you know, maybe the strangest, <laughs> if you can say them, <laughs> if, if not, but, you know, what are some of the, the things that you've been given to test that might have DNA on them? I think that might be very interesting to hear. 
Um, I think probably the most interesting things are um, there's been times that we've had to test personal effects, and those are just things that maybe belonged to an individual who is now deceased. So oh. whether we are trying to do a paternity test or maybe we have a homicide and we don't have the uh, victim's body to be able to test, um, we've had to find something that they touched. So you talked about hairbrushes, toothbrushes, razors, mm-hmm. things like this that they've used personally only on themselves. Those can work well. But just within the last couple of weeks, we were asked to test a pair of dentures. So we had oh, some dentures in there. <laughs> Um, I've also done um, people who wear disguises when they are committing different oh. crimes. Um, I had, you know, those really goofy teeth that sometimes people wear. In yeah. The joke? yeah, yeah, yeah. Some guy had worn those when he was robbing a bank, and so the gal remembered <laughs> I, there was something weird with his teeth. I don't know what it was, and sure enough, they found him outside. He had thrown them, you know, as he was running away, and yeah. so that was helpful for us. <laughs> Wow. So basically anything that your skin or your bodily fluids can stick to is a good possible source of DNA for you to use in any type of uh, um, DNA analysis then, right? Right. Well, how have the methods of using DNA for various types of you know, criminal investigations, healthcare research, and so on. How have they evolved over the years? I mean, is it exponentially getting much more advanced or is it kind of going, you know, on a, a level, you know, rise or have we leveled off here? How's that been going? Well, when I first started in the laboratory about, you know, almost 20 years ago, um, you had to have a fairly you know, good size blood stain, let's say at least a size of a dime. And um, in order to have enough DNA to be able to generate a DNA profile. And at that time, we were only testing about nine locations on your DNA. Um, Then over time, it switched to, you know, you needed less DNA. And then we were looking at 16 locations. And now currently for the past almost two years, um, we only need, they say, between maybe 70 to 100 cells in order to generate a full DNA profile that has 23 locations. So that so they, sounds like, what, something you couldn't see unless you look through a microscope, maybe? Well, you know, that is true, but we don't even look at a microscope most of the time. Um, we will just swab an area. You know, a lot of times people want to know up front, do you think this is going to work? Can we swab this? And will you be able to tell me, you know, what I want to know? And a lot of times we just have to try it. I mean, I've had things that I thought should work and they don't. And I've had things that I thought would never work. And then they give me a beautiful profile. So sometimes it's just a guess. So it sounds like the, well, how about the accuracy then? of the DNA analysis. It sounds like you're, you're, you're able to use much, much smaller samples. So are, is the accuracy much better today now too? I would say the accuracy is the same. It's just that we are testing more locations, which then when I do a statistical calculation to see how rare that profile is, the numbers just keep getting higher and higher because, you know, the more locations I test, that makes it more difficult for anyone else to match. And so now, you know, when I get a DNA profile now that's a single source, there's, there's no way anyone else could possibly match unless they're an identical twin. 
Oh, okay. Well, so identical twins, since you brought that up, how close are those DNA uh, results with identical twins? I mean, they can't be 100%. Are they like 99.999 or or are they 100%? (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes. Like you said, there's obviously some slight differences, but in my testing, they show up as exactly the same. Really? Wow. That's very interesting. So then the only way they're able to tell the difference is they will have different fingerprints. Oh, okay. There you go. So you you need to get something else in there. I was just thinking, man, if you uh, wanted to blame something on your identical twin, why, there you go. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) if you you wanted to be mean that way. So are you doing a lot of testing for old cases now that you have this capability that's so advanced and, you know, in just the last two years, are you getting a lot of cold cases that um, you're, you're doing forensics with? You know, we've always been able to um, go back and test old cases, um, but about a year and a half ago, I think, um, we actually got a huge grant through the Omaha Police Department to do uh, cold cases do testing for those cases. Because if you think about it, the problem is, is there's so much crime happening currently and the DNA labs are already so overwhelmed by all of the current um, casework that there's no way they could possibly go back and also deal with cold cases. And so our laboratory, since we're a private laboratory, um, we're able to have a pretty quick turnaround time. And then that way they will bring us the cold cases so that, you know, otherwise they would probably just sit on the shelf for a long time because they're just not something that they need done right now. So, um, yes, I've done lots of cold cases. And I think the oldest one I did was maybe 40 years old. And I still was able to get DNA results from, I believe it was blood stains and from a hair. Blood stains in a hair. So that hair had a root on it still from 40 years ago. They'd preserve that for you then. Right. Okay. Well, talking about your cases now, there was a, I know you've done a lot of cases. There was one I, I read about um, the the Chris Edwards murder of Jessica O'Grady. And I know that that was one that made the headlines um, quite a bit, especially here in the Midwest, Midwest, but can you kind of describe that case and then how you help to, um, point the finger to the murder? Sure. Um, that was a case in which a college student here in Omaha, um, basically went missing. So she had told her girlfriends that were her roommates that she was going to go meet a guy friend of hers from work. And um, after that night, no one ever saw her again. Um, Through an investigation, what they were able to discover was that the gentleman that she was to meet that night, um, he had actually killed her. So we didn't have her body. That was the first case in Nebraska in which we didn't have the body to prove that an actual death had occurred. And so what we had to do was rely heavily on the amount of blood that we detected to show that no one could have actually survived um, losing that much blood. So um, in his bedroom, he had his mattress, which was soaked about, oh gosh, about one third to one half of the top um, was soaked in blood about an inch thick. Oh my God. So there was that. 
there was that blood on the mattress. And then through looking with luminol and um, even just visibly, there was blood spatter all over his room. So they were able to show that, well, for sure they knew that she died in that room. And then basically he was the only one who had access to that room. So um, he ironically had sent her a text that said, uh, what happened? I didn't see you tonight. <laughs> so oh. he thought he, he thought he was being smart. Um, but anyway, so we were able to show, um, first of all, I had to do some testing on some personal effects of hers because we didn't have her um, body to get a DNA profile from to compare to all of this blood that we had found. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to test some clothing and a hairbrush of hers to make sure that we had her DNA profile. And then I tested, gosh, I think 50-some items. Um, Part of it was testing enough of the blood just to show that all this blood is hers and she would have had to have died. And then also was testing, um, for instance, her car ended up back at work. And um, we, we assumed that, you know, he must have driven it over there. So I did some swabs within the car to try to see if I could detect his DNA profile within her car. Um, I tested some weapons that were found in his closet um, that we believe may have been used during the assault. And so those were different items that I tested for DNA. So you did find his DNA in the car then when you tested it? Um, I found a partial profile of him. It wasn't very strong statistics, uh-huh. um, but I, I was not able to rule him out. Okay, so he probably tried in some way then to cover up his body and so he wouldn't leave behind then any type of DNA through his skin or through his uh, bodily fluids, and it sounds like, right? I mean, yes, he may have done that. Or he, he could have wiped down the surface or, you know, potentially if she was the only one who was ever in her car, you know, it may have just been so overwhelmed with her own DNA profile that it was difficult to detect his. Oh, that's a good point. I never thought about that before. So, so what happened? I mean, I guess back to this, not finding the body, but yet you talked about the just large amount of blood soaked into the the mattress were were you or were the other investigators did they estimate based upon the amount of blood spatters and also the volume of blood in the mattress were they able to say there's approximately so many gallons of blood here and since we know that a human body only has this many gallons that there's no way that um that there could have been any survival from this? Um, We weren't actually able to do that. And part of the reason is because all of the bedding um, from that particular bed was gone. And so we knew there would be blood on the bedding that we wouldn't be able to calculate into that mathematical equation. Also, um, he had flipped the mattress over. So... Um, and then put an afghan in between the mattress and the box springs. So the blood had had a chance to settle, like I said, about an inch deep into the mattress, but then was flipped and Mm -hmm. came back, you know, through gravity back towards the top again and into the afghan. So it would have been extremely difficult to try to calculate the actual volume. And so Mm -hmm. instead we just buy, you know, how much blood was on the ceiling, how much blood was on the mattress. Um, you know, all the different places that we found blood, we felt like we had showed that there was no way anybody could have survived 
that attack. And he was found guilty of that murder, correct? Yes. Okay, so oh, that's that's fascinating. How many different cases have you done? I said it in your intro, but I think it's worth mentioning to our listeners again. I believe it's around 900. Wow. Wow. That's just amazing. So when you have all this DNA, you're doing all these different types of forensics. Now, when I think about DNA, of course, I come from looking at things from a a privacy perspective. And I start thinking about the ways in which that data in this topic of DNA of a person can then also impact their ancestors, their children, grandchildren, so on. Um, And then I start thinking about the different other agencies beyond, you know, you're, you're helping to solve crimes, but then I start thinking about government agencies that want to get that DNA data and insurance companies and, you know, other types have, is there any type of, um, you know, trend that you're seeing with uh, these other companies like insurance companies? Could they use DNA to maybe identify a proclivity to certain deadly diseases or mental illnesses? Well, they have always said that the areas of DNA that we test for forensics were specifically chosen to not give out any kind of medical information. Um, There has been some people along the way that have said maybe, you know, this one location might give some kind of a rare uh, piece of medical information. But for the most part, none of the forensic DNA testing gives you any kind of medical information. Um, As far as uh, insurance companies, that's been something I've been hearing about for years, you know, that the general public is concerned about that mm-hmm. the government will get a hold of their DNA profile and then, you know, the insurance companies will find out and they won't get insurance. Um, I'm not aware of that happening as of yet because, like I said, our testing doesn't give out that type of information. Okay. Um, I suppose it could still be a concern, but as of right now, I, I don't find that to be concerning, no. I, I think that's an important point because oftentimes when people think about DNA and doing forensics and testing, I think uh, the general public often thinks that it's, you know, it's all the same. I mean, that you're finding um, all the different types of possible information from your DNA analysis and forensics. But from what you're saying, you're looking at for some very specific things that are related to the cases that you're um, investigating. So it's not like you're doing a full-blown analysis for every single type of you know, attribute that's um, associated with that DNA? Yes, that is true. So ours only goes back to the identity of that particular biological fluid, and it doesn't give any other kind of info. So how many times then have you seen, I mean, we talked about, you know, criminal cases and using that to find someone guilty in this horrible murder, Um But how about then also having DNA analysis to exonerate the innocent? Have you been involved in those types of cases as well? Yes, um, we do testing for the defense, and I've been involved in several of those. Um, My coworker was actually involved in what was the biggest exoneration in the country at the time, which that's been maybe five, six years ago, Um, and it was called the Beatrice Six. I don't know if you ever heard of that case. 
But basically, there was an older woman who was killed, and Beatrice, she was also sexually assaulted. Um, Six different people had come forward as kind of a group of individuals, some males, some females. Um, They all kind of were, you know, it was the 70s. They they were doing maybe some drugs and things, and they um, actually admitted that they were involved. And so it was kind of one of those things where they now decided it was a false confession. Um, but we were able to do some additional DNA testing from some samples on carpet and it exonerated oh. all of them. So, Oh, wow. It, yeah. It, exa- it was six people that were exonerated. So DNA forensics is a very valuable tool, not only for catching the criminals, but also to help the innocent to prove their innocence as well. Um, do you have any situations where DNA was found to have wrongly convicted someone, or has it gotten to the point where that doesn't really happen that much anymore? You know, I haven't heard of that um, very much. I believe I have sort of one scenario in which there was an identical twin situation. So yeah. that did um, <laughs> come into play in, a, in one case. Um, and then recently there's been um, a case out in California where a gentleman was treated um, at a gas station. I think he was highly intoxicated and was kind of an individual that this had happened several times. He would become intoxicated. The gas station efficient would call and have him taken to the hospital. And so he was. Um, and then coincidentally, um, I think it was in within 30 miles or so, um, this uh, couple was assaulted and killed. I believe one of them lived. Um, and they found this gentleman's DNA at the scene. They later figured out that he was in the hospital at the time, so there was no way he could have been there. And they think that it was transferred maybe by the paramedic. At the oh. param- it was the same paramedic who had treated him at the gas station who also went to the scene to treat the person who had been assaulted. Oh, wow. So that was kind of a crazy case. But other than that, I have not heard of DNA, you know, necessarily wrongly convicting. I think sometimes um, DNA can be sort of misrepresented at trial. Um, sometimes attorneys will overstate, you know, how, uh, you know, important the match is or what it, what it proves or what it doesn't prove. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, for the most part, everybody's trying to be open and honest about these are the results and this is what they need. Right, right. And that that's, you know, making sure that there has not been any uh, introduction of anything to the DNA samples that would compromise the, the results too, right? Right, yes. We have a, a lot of different, you know, uh, procedures in the laboratory itself to make sure that we're not contaminating in between um, cases, for sure. Um, and then, of course, everybody's become a lot more cognizant of DNA and at the scene, and you don't want to contaminate between items or, you know, from a person who's collecting to the item itself. So I think people are being very careful about all of that. Well, we're at the almost at the end of the the time. What would be one thing that you would want our listeners to keep in mind when it comes to DNA analysis and the ability to identify specific individuals? Well, um, you know, I just think DNA is currently probably the most accurate way that we have to identify biological material, um, but mm-hmm. it's really just a, a piece of the puzzle. 
it, it can create a lead. And then the officers still have to go back and do an investigation and show that this makes sense. So, um, you know, it's just a piece of the puzzle. It's never the, you know, the nail in the coffin that proves the whole thing. Generally speaking, there's other pieces to the case as well. So it's a team team sport, <laughs> definitely teamwork to get something, you know, a, a crime solved. So. And a, and a very important thing to keep in mind, it's a very good tool. So, well, thank you so much, Melissa, for being on the show. You know, you You're provided... Welcome. Yeah, great. You've provided such interesting uh, and informative insights into DNA analysis and forensics. Today, we've been speaking with Melissa Heligso, an expert forensic DNA analyst. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on all of the, the re- podcast and radio outlets. I think I have about 11 different ones right now. You can also uh, go to the Voice America business channel and find the recordings there. Uh, contact me with questions, comments, and let me know your show topic ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job, and do your daily work. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and those you work for if they're doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.